who gets federal money needs to celebrate Constitution Day. And so the history department has taken this as a joyous way to get some good conversation about the Constitution and why it matters. And so today is a special day because we're going to be talking about the musical Hamilton and how it has gotten people to talk more about the Constitution. So we're really excited about doing that. Um, our program is mainly going to be a panel discussion from four faculty members at Goshen College, and I'll introduce them later. But before we go to the panel discussion, we have three amazing students who are going to sing a number and introduce the number themselves um, for you, and that is Lucas Thompson, Josh Lichty, and Caleb Lichty. So we'll let them take it away. Alrighty, so uh, this song is Dear Theodosia and it takes place a little bit into the musical. Um, it's basically the two main characters, uh, Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, are speaking to their children. They've, they both just recently had children. Um, Aaron Burr has had a daughter, Theodosia, and Hamilton has had a son, Philip. Um, so they're in the song, they're singing to their children and talking about their hopes, some of their fears and their dreams of what they hope that they could do, what kind of nation they hope they could make for their children to grow up in. Um, so we're going to perform this for you. Hope you enjoy. Dear Theodosia, what to say to you? You have my eyes, you have your mother's name When you came into the world you cried And it broke my heart I'm dedicating every day to you Domestic life was never quite my style When you smile You knock me out, I fall apart and I thought I was so smart You will come of age with our young nation We'll bleed and fight for you We'll make it right for you If we lay a strong enough foundation We'll pass it on to you We'll give the world to you And you'll blow us all away When you smile, I am a dunce. 
my son, look at my son. Pride is not the word I'm looking for. There is so much more inside me now. Outshine the morning sun, my son. When you smile, I fall apart, and I thought I was so smart. My father wasn't around. My father wasn't around. I swear that I'll be around for you. I'll do whatever it takes. about five minutes and then hopefully we'll have some time for a little back and forth and a little uh, discussion uh, amongst the panelists. Um, Philip Golner is, uh, teaches in the history department, He, um, especially U.S. history. He's teaching uh, classes now in the first part of American history as well as a food class um, and does all kinds of other things. Deborah Detweiler is a music professor. Um, I'd love to see her women's choir, but I know she does lots of other things as well. And Richard Aguirre is is in, um, let me get this right, is um, Director of Corporate and Foundation Relations. And each of them will go in order. But the very first speaker is our Hamilton super fan, and that's Regina Shanstalsfus. Um, Regina Shanstalsfus is a professor in the Peace, Justice, and Conflict Studies Department, but she also teaches in Bible religion, she teaches in history, she teaches in sociology. She is the all-around professor at Goshen College. Um, but today, it, she is um, defending her dissertation for a PhD in theology. Let's all give her a hand. <laughs> So send uh, prayers and good thoughts her way. I think it's at 3 o'clock this afternoon is when she's defending. So she is in Chicago today, and, you know, we just couldn't have a Hamilton uh, convo without Regina because she, I think she was the first and the most enthusiastic fan around. I don't know. How many times has she seen it? Four? I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, so we are going to bring Regina in uh, with a video feed and hopefully it's all going to work and you're going to, we'll start with her so she'll have the first word. 
Hi, everyone. Well, if there is ever a day that I wish I wouldn't have missed, it is this one. My colleagues and my friends and maybe some of my students know that I have been obsessed with Hamilton, the musical and the soundtrack for the past two years. And so I'm glad that I could share my thoughts with you in this way. And I'm really sorry that I couldn't be there. So I hope that the whole uh, convo is videotaped so that I can see the whole thing. Well, it was first the soundtrack that drew me in. I listened to it on Spotify so much that eventually I just had to buy it so that I wouldn't use data when I was away from home listening to the soundtrack. I listened to it that much, and my family members can attest to that, and I have won many of them over to be just as obsessed with the soundtrack as I am. Um, I like it because of the homage to many different genres of music, not just um, not just rap, but R&B and British pop and lots and lots of art forms, lots of wordplay. I love narrative. I love the artistry of taking this point in history and pulling us in with just the, the words, just the artistry of uh, the songwriting and the lyrics and everything that goes with that, the characterization and seeing the musical itself seeing the costumes, the whole package is wonderful. I love theater, and so it is a great piece of theater. Is it authentic, true to life, word for word history? No, it is not, and it doesn't pretend to be. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda has said the places where he has taken artistic license with that, and so we are not to take it as uh, chapter and verse absolute historical facts. He took some of the facts and made it fit into the story that he was telling. Um, and that is what art does. It is inspired by real life, and then it moves us to another place, and it helps us think about that part of history and that part of life and where we fit in and how it has influenced us. I love language, and I love clever wordplay, and this soundtrack has all of that in it, and so it is something that you can listen to again and again and again and not get tired of it and keep discovering more and more things about it. Um, and I think one of the most important things about this is that it is the acknowledgement that human beings are complex. It takes these quote-unquote heroes, and you can think about these people as historic, um, are they heroic? Not in all of their actions, and many of their actions are questionable. But presenting these characters, particularly the main characters, as complex people who love and hate and fight and make terrible decisions and do terrible things, um, and the complexity of the human experience just really comes through with that. And you. Um, think about the fact that is the only thing that we remember of people the worst thing that they ever did or the best thing that they ever did? And the answer is, for most of us, we hope that we will be remembered for more than our mistakes, um, especially the terrible mistakes. And these people make some big mistakes. Finally, I'll talk about uh, the casting. 
uh, the original Broadway cast and the other casts uh, that are happening in other places around the country use primarily people of color. And it adds another dimension to this story that is about primarily white people and primarily about white men. It brings women into the narrative. Uh, people of color play roles that we know were not people of color. Um, and it makes us think about this point in history in a very different way. And as I said earlier, that's what art does. It takes things and puts a twist on it, gives us something to think about, and in this case, it gives us something to think about, and we can have fun while we're thinking about it. So, Hamilton the Musical, I'm a fan now, and will be a fan for years and years to come. Thanks, y'all. No, John Adams did not fire Alexander Hamilton when he became president. And Samuel Seabury didn't write pamphlets after 76. Samuel Seabury was in prison. And yes, uh, Alexander Hamilton. Is this on? Yes. Alexander Hamilton uh, was key in passing the Alien and Sedition Acts through Congress. This is America's first federal immigration regulation. And oh, oh, he also proposed, uh, a constitutional convention, he proposed a presidency for life kind of a, a quasi-king. So today that would be, well, who is the, the youngest president, last president still alive? It would be Jimmy Carter, right? Yeah, we'd still have Jimmy Carter as a president. Or more in Hamilton fashion, imagine uh, Reagan and Carter duel and the winner becomes president for life. Or you'd be stuck with Trump for life. Or Obama for life and, and people have various reaction to both scenarios and we would all rail about Hamilton for this kind of proposal. So all that's history, and uh, more snobbish historians have pointed out that you should not look to the musical for historical accuracy. Well, duh. It's, <laughs> the, the, who, was, who else was annoyed by the constant fact checks during the election last year as well? This is not our guts and our hearts and our brains and our, our ways of uh, constructing identity aren't necessarily wired that way uh, or react to constant fact checks. Now, let's get a little bit more serious, though. Uh, you might have heard Princeton University has a history department do, and there is a uh, historian there who has written a lot about the American Revolution, Sean Willens. Last book was over a thousand pages, which is just obnoxious. And he has uh, pointed out that Alexander Hamilton was more a man for the 1% than the 99% meaning he was somebody who tended to represent or carry a political agenda that tended to benefit richer and more educated folks in America. Which is interesting given that the musical itself tends to have a more educated listenership and fan landscape. And another historian of the Caribbean has pointed out that with all the focus on the American Revolution, there are genuinely black revolutions going on at the same time in the Caribbean, and those are eclipsed. So those are somewhat more serious points. They get a bit more to the meta level that the musical wants to engage. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that Hamilton is simply, it's a kind of a version of Braveheart? Shiny hero? Uh, is it the, the left progressive version of what people on the right, like Glenn Beck, do with George Washington? And if so, 
What's wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that? Lin-Manuel Miranda, the mastermind behind Hamilton, is Cuban. My hunch is, after having seen it, after having talked to fans, become a partial fan myself, my hunch is this is really what we're talking about is fan fiction about American history. Right? That's, it's literally a creative text written uh, by a fan that reinterprets, pulls apart, puts back together a canon that already exists. Think about it. There's an alternate universe in the musical compared to actual historical events, right? Characters are transplanted into a somewhat different setting to make them do somewhat different things, to reshuffle the deck of actions and, and of morale. There's race spending going on, it's a common feature in fan fictions. Right? You insert characters of underrepresented groups uh, to change the narrative, to, to make it possible for people who would not normally be represented to, to watch. I was afraid this would happen. To watch and to uh, feel like a belonging in the story as well. Uh, Hamilton collapses time, it's about well over centuries of years, collapses time and, and shifts characters with certain techniques into the present to make them do things that seem quite familiar to us. For example, they rap. Huh? All that is uh, classic techniques of fan fiction. Uh, the scenario is no longer that the Founding Fathers are white and that the canon is circumscribed that way. The cast, as Regina pointed out, is largely people of color, and so the canon is opening up. There's no question to me that Lin-Manuel Miranda loves the canon, loves the founding story of the United States, and the way that he expresses his love for that is by messing with it and by having fun with it. So the question of historical authenticity doesn't just make a lot of sense of the argument that Hamilton is trying to make. The musical isn't about what Hamilton, the historical figure, was or wasn't. To put it more extremely, Hamilton is not about Hamilton. Does that mean that historians teach their students to just forget the facts and just make up fictional stories of the past that fit their needs? No. I don't think you can productively reflect on the past and your place white, immigrant, whatever, in it, and your identity here and now, if you don't work at becoming the kind of critic, the kind of independent thinker who can ride out the hypes of present-day social media and of present-day political discussions, and, as Miranda did, see your own place in a longer story that tells us how we got to where we are today. We teach digging into data to find those stories, stories, not a story, not the story. We teach narratives, we teach arguments. We teach how to frame them in compelling, compassionate ways so you're not snobby about the past and not snobby about yourself. And we teach you how to be critical thinkers uh, that transcend the degree that's on your CV. So you could one day be the voice around the boardroom that's able to put culture in context and not just swim with it. That, at its best, is what the musical does. So see it, enjoy it, it's marvelous. And then argue about it, amen. So as Regina said earlier, one of the strengths of art is how it can take a subject 
and present it in a way that is appealing and engaging. It puts it out there and it allows us an arena in which to talk about it. And Lin-Manuel Miranda has made a large part of the population today enthusiastic about what might be a very stuffy subject. Apologies. <laughs> and so my, my charge is to talk a little bit about how he's done that musically. Uh, we know that the show's music is largely inspired by R&B and hip hop and some rap. And it's so popular because this music is the language of our current popular culture. We recognize the lyrics, we feel the strong driving rhythms in the percussion, and the characters speak texts that we can relate to. We see their inner turmoils, and though we may not have experienced what they've experienced, we still have the same emotions that they're describing. Lin-Manuel says that the character of Hamilton embodies hip-hop. He has a life that he has to bring up from the ashes. He was born a bastard, he becomes an orphan, and then an immigrant coming to New York City in the storyline that Lin-Manuel writes. I'm wondering by a show of hands, how many of you have been to see the show, Hamilton. How many of you have been lucky enough to do that? So we have a, a slight representation, and I'm sure if you asked any of those folks, they'd be able to share things with you. And my guess is that when you went, before you went, you had done your homework. You knew the plot, and probably we all know the plot. You could probably sing some or all of the music by heart and you were well acquainted with the characters on stage and the actors off stage. Well, the same thing happened in the world of opera, and it still happens today, but I want to talk about Europe in 1786, specifically Austria, because there was an opera that was performed in that year, it had its first performance, that I want to compare slightly to Hamilton, and that opera is The Marriage of Figaro by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And many of you probably recognize that title. We performed the opera here about four or five years ago with students in the cast. And here's the connection. In that opera, the rights of the working class and their ability to outsmart the ruling class are championed. Much like Hamilton climbs to the top from nowhere and guides a country. A person who has no power becomes strong. When Figaro was first performed, it was almost banned by the Austrian emperor. In fact, the actual play that it's based on, a play written by Beaumarchais, was banned several years before that, but they worked to get it to be performed. But the reason it was going to be banned is that the emperor feared it would rile up the working class to confront the ruling aristocracy. Art can do that. Art has power, and we see that in Hamilton. Look at how Lin-Manuel represents King George in his British breakup anthem, You'll Be Back. Can you all sing with me? Yep, he does that. And we've got a funny-looking British king. A king singing a song inspired by British invasion pop 
modeling it along the lines of a deeply dysfunctional romantic relationship. Another commonality between Miranda and Mozart is the way that they treat ensembles. Mozart became famous for his add-on ensembles. Two singers would start, a third character would enter the stage and join them, a fourth and so on until all seven of the main characters were singing different words and melodies that all blended harmoniously. Miranda creates multi-layer songs such as the election of 1800 when Hamilton chooses between backing Jefferson or Burr in their bid for the presidency and the Battle of Yorktown that involves the entire cast layering texts and notes on top of each other and alternating between solo and ensemble singing. I could go on and on and talk about musical themes and how Miranda uses the themes to bring in particular characters. For instance, those first 11 notes of the short overture, bum, ba da da dum, bum, bum, ba da da, and then we start. Every time we hear those notes, we know something's going to happen in Hamilton's life. The same thing Figaro does with orchestra and, and music. But that's for another time and another lesson. I will say that what we get with Hamilton from the very beginning is the frenetic intensity of Hamilton's character. He's always reaching for the next thing. He never stops and neither does the music until we have Eliza's epilogue at the end telling us how history writes the story. Good morning, I'm Richard Aguirre, and I want to talk about uh, the play as it relates to immigration and the U.S. Constitution. Any of you who have known anything about the play knows that it touches on themes that are woven through this country's history. Individual achievement, the journey to the American dream, contributions of immigrants, and most especially, disagreements over the role of the federal government. And I think we can relate to those themes because we are seeing them play out every day in this country. From the opening song, as Deb pointed out, we learn about Hamilton's challenges, the fact that he was born out of wedlock in the West Indies, impoverished in squalor, a father who abandoned him when he was 10, a mother who died when he was 12, and then when he was 17, his town was destroyed by a hurricane. A pretty bad life so far. But he didn't give up. He had a quick mind, he had a way with words, and he had ambition and had luck on his side and he was able to come to New York. And within five years of being in New York, he had already graduated from college and he was George Washington's top aide in the Continental Army. So this was quite a meteoric rise, military, political achievements. But the one thing about him, even though there are historical inaccuracies in the play, as, as Philip pointed out, is I think it captured a theme through his life which was great ambition, a willingness to speak out all the time, a willingness to really argue stridently for his view. And that did lead to significant achievements, but it also led to significant disappointments in his life, and I think ultimately led to his death. Countless others, including some of your ancestors and mine, had similar success stories. They fled adversity, famine, poverty, war, religious persecution, and built a new life in this country. 
And sometimes they left rigid class systems because they wanted to break away from what would have been a pattern of their life being consigned to poverty. My family's own story mirrors that kind of journey. I had a, a, I'm a second generation American on my mom's side and third generation on my father's side. My father's mother came to this country after the Mexican Revolution for a better life. My maternal grandmother came because she had an abusive husband who was often drunk and often beat her. So she fled that circumstance and that led to choices that affected others in the family. My mom had to leave school when she was in the eighth grade. My dad didn't get past the sixth grade. But they desired something better for their kids. And as, as their dream was realized, it was in their kids. Uh, and I was able to go to college and get a white-collar white job. So those themes of immigration, assimilation, and the pursuit of the American dream have always been part of many of our lives, and it's been part of mine. And I've had a long time interest in immigration because the immigration system has touched my family at many levels in many times of my life. So I knew people in my family from Mexico who were undocumented, who came to this country, and who wanted to break away from poor lives that they have. And you would think that with that common story reflected in many homes here, households here, that our founding fathers and our leaders today would have an appreciation for immigration. But you would be wrong. I'll read two statements from two famous Americans. The first, the bosom of America is open to receive not only the opulent and respected stranger, but the oppressed and persecuted of all nations and religions, whom we shall welcome to our participation of all our rights and privileges. And here's the second. Few of their children in this country learn English. The signs in our streets have inscriptions in both language. Unless the stream of their importation could be turned, they will soon so outnumber us that all the advantages we have will not be able to preserve our language and even our government will can become precarious. So the first quote was from George Washington and the second was Ben Franklin, whom many of us think of that kindly scientist you know, with the funny glasses. But that kind of split personality has been reflected in our leaders from then and continuing to this day. And all of us remember what Donald Trump, now president, said during the election when he called Mexicans rapists and drug dealers, promised to build the wall in the southern border, and talked about turning away Muslim immigrants. So are President Trump's executive orders on immigrants and refugees constitutional? That is the great debate that's being played out right now. Congress has the absolute power, according to the Constitution, to control immigration. And that is extended to the point that even when Congress has passed clearly discriminatory laws, those have been upheld by the courts. The president has very limited ability to affect immigration, except when it comes to how laws passed by Congress are enforced or not enforced. So over the years, this has led to a pretty common thread in our history, that acting on behalf of the majority, Congress has consistently limited or denied entry to racial, ethnic, or religious minorities, sometimes during times of war or high unemployment. So Germans, Chinese, Irish, Poles, Italians, Catholics, Jews, and more have been targeted for exclusion. Today, it's Muslims with the travel ban 
and Mexicans in the DACA program. In January, President Trump signed an executive order temporarily barring citizens of Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen from traveling to the United States as well as denying entry to Syrian refugees. He said it was to protect the nation. Many others called it the Muslim ban. And critics have argued that this was unconstitutional. They've gone to court saying that this travel ban violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause and the right to due process. That debate is being played out right now. And in fact, yesterday, the Supreme Court largely left intact this travel ban and we'll hear the actual constitutional issues next month. Last week, as many of you know, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced a six-month phase-out of the DACA program. That's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival. And that's a program that's allowed about 800,000 young people, 10,000 in Indiana, the opportunity to be here on a temporary basis. It's allowed them to work, go to school, it's a two-year renewable permit. The Obama administration uh, created DACA in 2012 because out of, out of a frustration that Congress had not done anything for these people and not done anything to reform the immigration system. What's important to know is that DACA didn't give dreamers a path to citizenship, and it didn't give them anything more than a temporary status. What it mostly meant is that in terms of an enforcement priority, they would not be anywhere close to the top of the list. And as long as they had this permit, they would be safe from deportation. That is now in the process of being phased out, although Congress has six months to do something about this. And now attorneys generals from 15 states are suing the Trump administration, and they claim that the DACA decision discriminates against Mexican immigrants who make up 78% of DACA recipients. As Washington Attorney General Bob Ferguson put it, if the overwhelming majority of dreamers were Caucasian, does anyone really think the president would take the action he has? It's an important question to think about. What is really interesting when you think about the travel ban and the DACA decision is that, and this is an editorial comment, on the one hand, the Trump administration is arguing that it has absolute power to decide who can come into this country. And on the other side is arguing it has no power to decide who stays in this country. Different sides of the same coin, I guess. So some people are engaged in these issues because of family members or friends are affected on limits of refugees and possible elimination of DACA. Some are involved for legal, moral, or religious reasons. And others, perhaps some historians, are worried because they think it might be repeating the past. The exclusion of Chinese from this country between 1882 and 1943, strict quotas in the 1920s that favored Protestant Northwestern Europeans and excluded most Catholics, Southern and Eastern Europeans. The deportation of Mexicans and even US citizens who are of Mexican heritage from 1929 to 1936 and the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. So we'll see soon whether the Muslim ban, or the so-called Muslim ban in DACA, will survive or not. Now I've only touched on a few issues related to the Constitution and immigration. There are many more issues, including the issue of birthright citizenship. That gives anyone born in this country 
automatic U.S. citizenship. That's been something that's gone from the beginning. Two years after the Constitution, that was put into place. And there are some people who would like to get rid of that and go to the standard that most of the world, including Germany, has, which is you are, if you have a bud relationship to a citizen, you are allowed to be a citizen. But if you're born in the country, it doesn't grant you automatic citizenship. All of these issues have real life consequences for many of you, for your classmates, many people in the community, as well as 11 million undocumented immigrants. So I'd encourage you to get involved, learn the history of immigration and what's happening today and get engaged. Your opinion matters and you have a right to be involved. Question or one sort of does it? Do any of you have questions of each other? Do you want to start out? Well, I, so I talked to a few of my students before uh, this convo because I really wasn't sure until yesterday what I actually was supposed to say. Right? You know, I want to be the curmudgeon who comes up and says, "This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong." Uh, what the vibe I got from them uh, was that while a lot of them were endeared, like the musical, a lot of them also saw that it it appeals pretty strictly to, let's call it one political demographic, half of the country, right? So uh, it, it tends to appeal to people already have a certain political persuasion who want to hear the kinds of stories highlighted that Miranda very ably highlights. And so in that sense, it reinforces American political divides and isn't, so it's re really not revolutionary at all. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's a musical that's an expression of the status quo more than that it's shaking up things. It, Richard, I wonder, have you, have you heard, a lot of the Hamilton fans I know are white. Have you heard from, from immigrants about the musical? Uh, and also, Deborah, what's, what's the discourse you're hearing in the musical world about the cultural role that it has assumed as well? Well, I mean, it, it does lead you to answer the question or to think about, if it was an all-white cast, would it have caught on as well as it has? And what's it like if you were to hear white actors saying some of the lyrics? It, it does make you think that it might not be as popular. In the Heights, which was his previous play, which I did see, it has many of the same themes and it had a lot of popularity also, but it was also very similar in terms of musical, in terms of the structure of the play. And I think musically, uh, what I've encountered from students is that they're pretty much in love with the score. Um, they are words that they recognize and that they're happy to sing, and it kind of reflects that all-American dream of, of starting low and, and moving with your own hard work up to the top. And that's just the type of music that it is. It's fun to sing. Okay, I think that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for coming.